Father, uh, we thank you that you are the God who cannot lie and who cannot fail. And so when you make us a promise, we know that, that we can stand on it. It is the bedrock upon which we can build a house, confident that nothing can shake it, nothing can overthrow us, uh, because you've promised life to us in your Son. So we thank you that you are such a God whose arms never grow tired. Um, me holding my kids, my, my arms get tired, but your arms, they never get tired. You never drop us, Lord. You never forsake us or leave us. We thank you for that, for who you are. And it's to your word, to your inerrant, all-sufficient, infallible word that we turn this morning. And we, we ask that your spirit would help us to understand it so that we may lay hold of the promises by faith and take our stand upon them because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us at Calvary, Lord. So open our eyes, we pray, to behold wonderful things in your word. Um, doesn't matter if I preach a lousy sermon or a great sermon. If your spirit doesn't take your word and do surgery on our hearts, nothing will happen. So, Lord, we, we ask for him to do the work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Galatians 4. We've, we've just started a new chapter in Galatians, chapter 4. And we're looking at verses 1 through 7 today. So turn there and I'll read it to us. Galatians 4. 1 through 7. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As a dad, one of the things I fear the most is to have my children grow up and still wonder whether or not I love them due to my failings as a father. I don't want them to doubt my love for them. And so I need to be very intentional in demonstrating my love for them and how I talk with them, how I hold them, how I pray for them, how I discipline them, how I lead them. When we consider the Galatians, I think it's fair to say that at the time of Paul's writing, they were doubting God's love for them, even to the point of questioning whether or not they were his sons and daughters. And I say that because, as we've said over and over again, these Galatians were playing around with the idea of getting circumcised and of placing themselves under the law of Moses in order to win the approval of that God, in order to earn a right standing with him. Now, why did the Galatians feel this way? It was not because of any fatherly failings on God's part, right? That might be why my kids question their love for me, but that is not why we sometimes question God's love for us. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with any failings on his part. Instead, the Galatians were questioning because the Judaizers had come in and they had pulled the wool over the eyes of the Galatians blinding them to the reality of God's love for them 
and causing them to question his adoption of them. In Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Paul is going to powerfully remind these believers that God has already accepted them through faith in Christ. He's going to show them that they're not slaves needing to work their way into the affections of the Father. Instead, he's going to show them that they are already sons and daughters of the Father. They are the apple of his eye. And what we're going to see Paul say to these believers is just as true for us today as it was for them all those years ago. So, and that is if you're trusting Christ. If you're not trusting Christ, what he says here is not true of you. But if you are trusting in Christ, what he says here is true of you. So let's begin to work through this passage. In verses 1 to 2, Paul paints us a picture. He gives us an illustration to help us understand how we as believers have come to be sons and daughters of God, heirs of God. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. Now, we we briefly looked at this verse last week. Uh, The word for child there, it's napias, and in this context, it refers to a young person who is not yet of the legal age to come into his inheritance. He's a minor in the eyes of the law. He cannot be trusted to do right things with the inheritance that is waiting for him. As such, this child, who's not of the age to receive his inheritance, this child, practically speaking, is no different from a slave. That's what Paul says. He does not differ at all from a slave. And that's the case, even though as a child of the father, he's the owner of everything. It it literally is, although he is Lord of all. Although he's Lord of all, he's, he's no different from a slave. Now, how is it that this child in such a situation is no different from a slave? Well, verse 2 tells us. Paul says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So this child, this legal minor, he's under the control of guardians and managers or stewards. Paul here has changed the illustration a little bit from what we saw last week in chapter 3. Remember the illustration there? He talked about the pedagogos, the custodian. Remember who he was? He was a slave who would lead the children around, making sure they got to where they needed to go. He would discipline them. That was the pedagogos. But here, Paul is speaking of guardians and managers, someone a little bit different. These are those who would manage the child's inheritance for him. So even though the child is lord of his father's estate, the child doesn't get to decide what to do with that estate. Because he's not yet of legal age, others are making those decisions for him. He doesn't have any say in the matter. But like we saw with the Pythagogos, this arrangement is temporary. Just like with the Pythagogos, the custodian, a time would come when the child would come out from under that person's care. So with guardians and managers, the time would come when that child would come out from under their management, and he would take care of the inheritance himself. In Paul's picture, in verses 1 to 2, he envisions the father of this child setting a particular date for when that child would get to receive his inheritance. 
at that time, the child would come out from under those guardians and managers. He would no longer be like a slave. Instead, he would enter into the full experience of being a son and heir of his father. Now, in verses 3 all the way through verse 7, and we'll see next week beyond that even, Paul begins to apply this picture to believers. And we're going to keep referring back to this picture that that Paul has painted for us because it serves as a kind of key to understand what he's saying in the following verses. So before we move on, before we move on, I want to give you five major features of this picture that Paul has painted for us. And each of those five uh, features are going to correspond with various things Paul says throughout these following verses. First, notice that there is a span of time in which the child is like a slave. And at the end of that span of time, he becomes a legally recognized son. Notice in verse 1, Paul says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child. There's a a certain amount of time he's talking about. And then in verse 2, he says, He's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So you have a span of time. Second, the second feature that we find in Paul's picture is that you have, practically speaking, a slave. A slave. As a legal minor, the child, verse 1, does not differ at all from a slave. Third, in verse 2, you have the steward whom the child is under. Verse 2 says the child is under guardians and managers or stewards. Fourth, the fourth feature we find in Paul's picture is in verse 2, you have the sire. I was looking for S words, so I settled on sire for father, right? You have the sire, that is the father of the heir, that heir who's waiting to come into his inheritance. And fifth and finally, in verse 1, you have the son, that is the heir. The child, once he reaches the date set by the father, he will finally come into the full experience of his sonship, into the the full experience of his status as the heir. So as we go along through these next verses, I want you to see if you can spot uh, these features that correspond to what Paul is talking about. The, The span of time, the slaves, the stewards, the sire, and the sons. All right, so let's, keeping that in mind, let's move on. Let's go to verse 3. In verse 3, Paul reminds us of what the problem was that faced us as unbelievers before we trusted in Christ. For, For all people, before Christ came and people trusted in him, what was the problem for them? Verse 3, Paul says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. When Paul says, so also, he's, he's already beginning to compare that picture with what he's about to say, all right? Speaking of believers, Paul says here that we, while we were children, that is, while we had not yet received the inheritance, we were held in bondage. So before becoming believers, even though God had chosen from all eternity to save us, to make us his heirs, Though that was the case, before we were believing, we were in bondage. Now, to be held in bondage is to be a what? 
a slave, right? There's one of the S words that corresponds to Paul's picture. It's a slave. And that verb, to be held in bondage, it's dulao. Sounds like doulas, right? And we know what that means, slave. Well, dulao means to enslave. Paul says that before we came into our inheritance as believers, we were enslaved. Now, what were we, what were we enslaved to? Under whose control were we? Paul says, the elemental things of the world, right? Now, which S from Paul's picture does this correspond to? Yeah, the stewards, right? So before coming to faith in Christ, we were slaves under the control of the elemental things of the world. Now, what in the world does elemental things of the world mean? So let let me work through a few verses to try to form some kind of semblance of understanding in our minds. Well, the, the word for elemental thing, it's the word stoicheion. And it basically means one of a row. So you have a row of things, and just one of those things is a stoicheion. It might be painful for you, but think back to chemistry class. Think back there, all right? You were forced against your will to learn about a certain table that is hung up on every chemistry class, classroom wall across the country. What was that table? Yeah, the periodic table of elements, right? And how is that arranged? You have rows and columns, right? And each block that makes up those rows is what? An element, oxygen, carbon, xenon, so on. That's like a stoicheion, one of a row. It's a basic component of something. It's like a building block. And depending on the context, this word, stoicheion, can mean one of a number of things. And we don't have time to flip to these cross-references, but just listen. You can write them down and look them up later. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and 12. In 2 Peter 3, 10 and 12, Peter says that on the coming day of the Lord, the elements, there's our word, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. He says the elements will melt with intense heat. There, the word stoicheion, it refers to the elements out of which the world is made, kind of like our periodic table of elements. But back then, they were not thinking of 118 elements. They were thinking of the four basic elements of earth, air, water, and fire. I think I would have liked chemistry class back then better than today. Four is easier, easier to remember than 118. So those were the elements. And Paul, Peter says they're going to be destroyed at the coming day of the Lord. Pagans would actually worship these elements, earth, air, uh, water, fire. They would worship them as deities. And so stoicheion also came to mean an elemental spirit. And some of your versions in your Bible might say that, under the elemental spirits. We find another use of this word in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12. Hebrews 5 verse 12, that verse says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles. There's our word. The elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. There, 
elementary principles seems to refer not to the basic components out of which the world is made. Instead, they refer to the basic truths of God's word, the ABCs of the faith, the basic principles of Christianity. And some of your translations in Galatians 4.3 might translate it that way. We're under the elementary principles. Paul actually uses this word again over in Colossians. How about we head over there? Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. And unlike 2 Peter and unlike Hebrews, in Colossians, Paul uses the same phrase as he does in Galatians 4 verse 3. The, in in 4.3, he said the elementary things of the world. Paul uses that phrase here in Colossians. Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Here, the, the phrase elementary principles of the world, it's, it's set in parallel with the tradition of men, kind of suggesting that they mean similar things. Paul says, see to it, no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. And Paul says that philosophy and empty deception are in accordance with that. So there's something about the elementary principles of the world that is very much man-centered and empty. And notice what it is set in opposition to in verse 8. He says, rather than according to what or who? Christ, right? According to, rather than according to Christ. There's something empty about the elementary principles of the world such that they cannot compare to the fullness of Christ. And then if you were to read verses 10 through 15, Paul would speak of that fullness that is there in Christ. He, he speaks to all that we have in Christ. He speaks to all that Christ has accomplished for us. And because of what we have in Jesus, Paul says what he says in verses 16 to 17. Look at that. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, because of what we have in him, the fullness that we have in him, verse 16, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. What does that sound like? Things from the law of Moses, right? Those sound like things from the law of Moses. And how does he describe them? Verse 17, these are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But this substance belongs to Christ. Without Christ, even having something good like the law of Moses, when you suck Christ out of it, it just becomes something like the traditions of men. It's just a shadow, right? And the shadow, when you stand in the sunlight and you see your shadow on the ground, you know, my wife doesn't fall down and, and, and hug that shadow, right? No, because the shadow's nothing. She, she hugs the one that the shadow is pointing to, me, right? If I've been good, that's what she does. So in, then Paul goes on, and I want you to look at verse 20. 
20 to 23. Paul says, verse 20, if you have died with Christ to, and there's our phrase again, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Paul again ties this phrase, elementary principles of the world, he ties it to man-made rules. And in Colossians, false teachers were, uh, it seems, kind of taking the law of Moses, twisting it, and trying to bring the Colossians under it. Very similar to what we see in Galatians, only there was probably some Gnostic heresy sprinkled in there in the situation in Colossae. But Paul says that these rules have no ability to restrain the flesh and bring about sanctification. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. So in Colossians, the elementary principles of the world seem to mean something along the lines of the ABCs of life in the world, doing things the way the world does them, the basic principles by which those in the world try to get ahead. You know, you do enough things and you'll get what you want. Follow enough rules and you'll be okay. But Paul says, no, you're not justified that way. You're not sanctified that way. Christless rules have no ability to do that for you. This, this last shade of meaning of stoicheion that we see in Colossians, that seems to be closer to how Paul is using it in Galatians 4. So let's go back to Galatians 4. But we, we run into a little bit of a problem when we try to map what Paul says in Colossians 2 to what he's saying, onto what he's saying here in Galatians 4. There seems to be a problem. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says that before faith in Christ, we were under the elementary things of the world. But up until this point, Paul has been describing people apart from Christ as being under what instead? Yeah, under the law, right? Under the law. So Paul seems to be placing the law and the elementary things of the world on the same level, the stewards by which we were enslaved. And that strikes us as inappropriate. Right? How can you bring the, the law of God and place it on the level of traditions of men? What is Paul doing? I thought Paul said that the law was holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, he did say that. He said that in Romans 7, verse 12. Let's head over there. Romans 7. And what Paul said is absolutely true. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. But Paul also says something else about the law. He says something regarding specifically the law's usefulness in saving a person. How useful is the law in sanctifying a person apart from Christ? 
Let's go to Romans 7, and let me read verses 7 through 13. Verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, remember what the law says, do this and you will live, right? This commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in what? Death for me. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful." So even though the law is good and it's from God, what does the law accomplish in the lives of unbelieving sinners? Rather than justify them, what does the law do? It exposes their sin and it condemns them, right? Rather than sanctify the unbeliever, what does the law do? The law actually arouses sin. Why does it do that? It's because sin is so sinful that when it sniffs a commandment of God, it rushes to break that commandment. That's how evil sin is. And rather than bring eternal life, the law actually provides a means for sin to more effectively kill you. Because by transgressing the law, sin brings on you the penalty of that law, which is death. So when it comes, very specifically, when it comes to justification... And when it comes to sanctification, apart from Christ, the law is of no help whatsoever in saving you or sanctifying you, right? Instead, what does the law do for the unbeliever? We've seen it. It drives him to the only one who can save him, right? The only one who can sanctify him, the Lord Jesus. So, comparing Colossians with Galatians, just like in Colossians, where we saw that the world's way of doing things cannot save you, cannot sanctify you, so the law, apart from Christ, cannot save you, cannot sanctify you. So when it comes to this very particular issue that Paul's talking about, which is justifying sinners, the law is no different from the elemental things of the world. Because justifying sinners was never what God gave the law for. So do you see how Paul can speak of the two kind of on the same level as as unbelievers before coming to Christ? So if, if that's the case, how is it that man could ever be justified? How could man ever be declared righteous by God? How could man ever come into the enjoyment of being a part of God's family if not even the law, which is holy, righteous, and good, can accomplish that for him? That's where we come to God's provision in verses 4 to 5. Look at verse 4. So verse 3, Paul has said, we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world, but, verse 4, 
when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Think back to Paul's picture. What S of Paul's picture does the fullness of the time correspond to? Yeah, the span of time, right? The date set by the Father, right? In verse 2, the date set by the Father, at which time the children, that is the slaves, are made sons and heirs. And in verse 4, who is the sire? There's a son being sent. Who's sending the son? Who's the sire in verse 4? Who's the father? God is. God is. And in verse 4, God, the father, he is said to send a son. Now, when I send a son, he's my son before I've sent him, right? Otherwise, I'd say I sent someone and he became a son. It says God sent his son. This shows us that this son is a little bit different from the one in Paul's picture, isn't he? How is he different? Well, he's already who? He's already God's son, right? He's not a slave. He's not under guardians and managers when God sends him. He's not waiting to inherit because as God's son, as the second person of the Trinity, how much of what the father owns does the son own? everything, all of it, right? All of it. He already possesses all things that his father possesses. So there's nothing that this son needed to do or wait for in order to be God's son, God's heir. He's God's son from all eternity. But look at how God the father sent his son. He says, God sent forth his son born of a woman. So this son who is God was born of a woman. He took on himself human nature. He became a man. That's the incarnation, right? And not only that, but he was also born how? Born under the law. Now, wait a minute. This eternal son did what? He was born under the law? You mean he placed himself under the guardian and manager of the law? You mean he made himself no different than a slave? Let's go to Philippians 2. And we see that, yes, that's what Paul is saying. Let's go to Philippians 2. Starting in verse 5. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, he's going to describe Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, a slave. Taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why did the father send his son to do this? His son did not need to do that in order to become a son. He was already the son. So why do that? What was the point of him coming and being born of a woman born under the law? Why, after a certain span of time, did the heavenly sire send his eternal son to become a slave 
under the steward of the law. Why did God do that? Verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus became a slave so that we could become sons. Jesus put himself under the law, under the steward of the law, to fulfill it perfectly. How did he fulfill the law? He obeyed it perfectly, right? He did everything the law commanded people to do. But not only that, he also fulfilled the penalty that the law demanded for those who break it. And Jesus fulfilled both. He obeyed it and he suffered under it in the place of his people who were slaves. By doing so, Jesus freed us from the condemnation of the law so that through faith in him we would be forgiven and we would be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Do you see that our adoptive sonship depends on his eternal sonship? and his substitution for us. So God the Father, he set a date in history when the children who were enslaved under law could become his adopted sons and daughters. And that date in history that the Father set was the date when what happened? When Jesus came, and he came into the world to save sinners. How do we split up human history? B.C.? And A.D., right? And it's so appropriate that we do that. When, when Christ came, that was a coming that was so, so enormous, of such consequence, that it's appropriate that we break all of human history into two periods of time, before Christ, B.C., and Anno Domini, A.D., in the year of our Lord. It's very appropriate that we do that. So that's God's provision. That's how we could come out from under the guardian and managers of the law, of the elemental things of the world, and become adopted sons and daughters. Now, in verses 6 and 7, we see that this is a reality that's not just written on a piece of paper somewhere. This is a reality that, that we participate in. Paul speaks in verses 6 to 7 of our participation. Verse 6, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This adoption as sons and daughters that we possess as believers in Jesus Christ, it's not only a legal reality. No, it's actually something that we get to participate in, that we get to experience. Think of when a family adopts a child. They don't simply make a legal record of it, right? What do they do? They bring that child into their home. They care for that child. They encourage that child to address them as mom and dad. And over time, that child begins to view that couple who adopted him as his mother and father. And he begins to come to them for everything. He interacts with them as a child does his natural mother or father. When you place your faith in Christ... God doesn't simply file his adoption of you in his heavenly filing cabinet and leave it at that. No, he does what? He sends the very spirit of his son into your heart. And as Christ's spirit comes into your heart, what does he do? He cries forth, 
Abba, Father. And in doing so, he enables you to confidently address God as your own Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. It's a term of endearment and intimacy. Only my sons and my daughter get to call me Father. Only they get to call me Dad. Nobody else gets to do that. Now, considering who their dad is, that might not seem like much of a privilege. But who is God? He is the Almighty. He is the thrice Holy One. He is the transcendent one, eternal one. He's the one whom no man has seen or can see. Even the holy angels in his presence need to cover their faces because they cannot gaze upon him. And I've read through the Bible many times, and I don't recall an angel ever addressing God as my father. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the preacher asks this in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That privilege belongs to who alone? Christ, right? Christ in and of himself alone gets to speak to God that way. Yet, because we are united to him by faith, we are adopted by God. And though we are lower even than the angels, we have the privilege of calling God my Father, my Abba. Verse 6 says that the Holy Spirit cries this out to God from our hearts. The Greek word for cry here is kradzo, and it's most often used to describe the type of speech that comes during circumstances of great distress or excitement, almost like you're compelled to just say it because of the circumstances in which you find yourself. Now this phrase, Abba, Father, we only find it two other places in Scripture. One is Romans 8, verse 15, and we'll turn there shortly. But the only other place is Mark chapter 14. Let's head back there. Mark 14, verse 32 is where we'll start. Mark 14, verse 32. says, They, that's Jesus and his disciples, they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Here we see Jesus in the middle of his greatest earthly trial. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's waiting to be betrayed by his disciple Judas. And he's facing crucifixion the following day where the wrath of God due the sins of his people will be poured out upon him for their salvation. And Mark tells us that in that garden, Jesus is distressed and troubled. 
and he's so grieved that he feels himself on the verge of death. You could say he was about to die of a broken heart. And it is as the eternal Son incarnate that Jesus falls to the ground and addresses God as his Abba, his Father. Nobody else got to talk to God like that. In fact, when the Jews heard Jesus talking to God like that, they called him a blasphemer. How dare he address God in so intimate a terminology as that? John 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Through faith in Jesus, God has adopted us as his sons and his daughters. And he has even sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that when we are distressed, we instinctively, by the spirit of Christ within us, turn to him as our father, just like Jesus turned to him in the garden. Let's go over to that third uh, occurrence of Abba Father in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 14. Paul says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. That is our great privilege as believers. We get to not only enter into this relationship of having God as our father, but we get to talk to him like that. And only believers get to do that. Unbelievers might be able to mouth the words, Abba, Father, but there will not be that sincere and humble, childlike dependence on God. There will not be that trust that God hears him and is for him in Christ. Many unbelievers in times of great distress, they'll resort to trying to bargain with God, right? They'll say, oh, oh God, get me out of this and I'll, I'll go to church every, every Sunday this year or I'll give $1,000 in tithes. Why do they feel the need to bargain with God. It's because there is no spirit of adoption within them. The spirit does not testify with their spirit that they are children of God. When my son falls and hurts himself, he doesn't try to bargain with me to get my attention. No, he just cries and he runs and he says, Daddy, and he just runs right up to me because he knows I love him. He knows he's my son. And it's the same with the believer and God. Before coming to faith in Christ, we might have felt like we needed to bargain with God. But now that we're believers, now that we've been adopted as a son or a daughter of God, now that we have the Holy Spirit of God's Son dwelling within us and crying out within us and for us, when we are distressed, we just rush into God's throne room by faith and we cry out to him, Father. We don't even think about doing it. We just do it. We don't stop and say, am I his child? Even the person struggling with great assurance, 
or, or struggling with assurance, questioning, am I a son or not? Because he actually is a son, because he's truly believing, even though he's wondering whether he is or not, when he's distressed, what does he do? He runs to his father, even though when he's thinking about it, he's questioning. But because he truly believes, the spirit is within him crying, despite his his doubts and fears, he still runs to him as to a father. In verse 7 of Galatians 4, Paul sums everything up. He says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If Jesus, the eternal son of God, placed himself under the law in order to bring believers out from under that law, and if God the Father has sent the spirit of his son to dwell within our hearts such that we can rightly address him as our father, then that means that there's nothing more that the Galatians or any believer needs to do to get right with God. You can't get more right with God than being his own beloved son, right? And that was the Galatians. They'd already been made God's sons. They weren't slaves anymore. They weren't under a steward anymore. They were full heirs of eternal salvation. They didn't need to get circumcised. They didn't need to put themselves under the law of Moses in order to become sons. They were already sons. And isn't that what Paul said way back in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5? He says, how did you receive the Spirit? It was by faith, not by the works of the law. So whenever anyone comes to you and they tries to tell you that you're lacking something as a believer, don't fall for that. You're not lacking. Listen to our call to worship, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. If you have not turned from your sin, if you have not trusted in Christ to be your Lord and Savior, I just want to ask you, don't you want this? Do you not want this, this relationship with God? Do you not see that This relationship with God is infinitely more satisfying than all the little momentary pleasures that sin can give you. That road of rebellion that you're on, it leads to an eternal ruin in hell where you're alienated from God forever. But if you turn to Christ by faith, if you turn to the eternal Son, in Him you will be made a son or daughter of God. You'll be fully accepted by Him and you will be adopted by him as your heavenly father. Let's pray. And if you have questions about how do I trust Christ, how do I get saved, please come and talk to me, Barney, Owen. I'll be here. I'll be the last one to leave. You're welcome to to come talk. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great, glorious truths we have seen in Galatians 4 that through faith in your Son, we have been made sons and daughters. 
And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not yet know Christ, may you draw them to your son so that in him they may be made a son or a daughter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.